So tonight we're going to go through Psalms 33. Um, one of our seminary professors cautioned us about preaching through the Psalms because they're not as cut and dried as they may seem. There's a lot of historical backgrounds. There's a lot of contextual settings. But when I prayed and asked the Lord what we needed to do, what would he have me speak on, Psalms 33 is what he said. And so um, I'm always surprised to see what he brings out. And when I taught, I always said, I'm not a teacher because I know so much. I'm a teacher because I have so much to learn. And still with studying this, I'm here because I have a lot to learn. Um, so tonight, I want you to, as we go through this journey of Psalms 33, there, there's a progression and I would ask that you just kind of see yourself in each setting and examine yourself where you are on each stage of the journey. I'm part of a Facebook group where we're involved with preaching. And once a week we do a Facebook thing. I've only participated a couple of times, primarily because I don't feel like I can spare that hour. But we went through a passage, uh, very short, three or four scriptures. And the lady leading it, she read the passage to us, and she asked us what stood out to us. She read it very slowly. And we each had to type in what stood out to us. And there were 55 of us, uh, sometimes a few more, but there's standard 55 of us. And I noticed what we each focused on. And what I focused on was something positive. And then I saw a lot of negative responses, which is okay. We all see things differently. But then she read it again, and she asked us to ponder it. We had times of silence and to think about it. And she asked us again what stood out to us. And again, there was just more negative responses than there was positive. And we did this a third time, and I was just challenged, okay, God, am I missing this, or am I just looking through these rose-colored glasses where I'm focusing on what you did? But what I recognized and what we all came to recognize as a group is we were seeing things based on where we were in our own life, in our own spiritual journey. So that's why I ask you tonight just to look in your own heart and examine where you are during this. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you tonight just grateful for who you are. It's always grateful for your love and your care and your mercy and your grace. God, open up your scriptures to us, Father. Speak through me, God. God, I don't know what your plan is for this, but God, I just pray that you use your words and that you would move upon the hearts of the people here tonight. God, reveal yourself and your plan to us. God, I pray that you would speak healing and life and peace. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to go through the text first. I'm just going to read the whole text. It is um, a little bit, but that's okay. I think we have time. Psalms 33.1. Shout for the joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. When we open this up in the psalm, and we don't know who the author is. Um, there is a little bit of evidence that it might be David, but there's not enough to really support that it's David. And Psalm 33 is a declarative praise. And in the psalms, you have descriptive praise, and you have declarative um, one just kind of describes praise and then what God has done and declarative you're praising God himself and it extols the greatness of God. In Psalms 33, it expresses hope and trust in God. Can any of y'all use a little more hope and trust? And it's a reminder that God is sovereign over all that is seen and unseen. And it reminds us that God is our hope and our shield. So in the first three verses, there's a call to praise. In the first voice, verse, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And so the righteous are called to rejoice. And I know we rejoice over certain things. We rejoice over the birth of a baby. We rejoice over new family members. Um, Some rejoice over some things coming up this weekend that I'm not going to mention by name. Um, But we rejoice in in times of happy. Um, But in this particular setting, in Psalms um, 33, it echoes Psalms 32, 11, where the people of God, they received his covenant and his steadfast love. And they had that reason to rejoice, okay? But the Bible tells us that praise should be an ongoing thing. It shouldn't just be here and there. You know, it says we should bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in our mouth. And sometimes we have spontaneous praise, and that's when times of blessing are apparent. Maybe we've been healed. Maybe God's answered a prayer that we've been asking for. We've had deliverance. We've had forgiveness. We've had restoration. Those are times of spontaneous praise. And it's always appropriate. But praise as a normative pattern, as a daily thing, is a biblical precedent. Verse 2 says, Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play, skillful, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, play skillfully with a loud noise. Now, literally, that means to do well in playing. Or the word rendered loud noise or loud voice means a shout of joy or rejoicing. And so it's especially applied to singing, ringing the trumpets or sound. And the idea of rejoicing is found in the Bible more than it is about making noise. You know, there's times when they were to make a loud noise and they were to have a shout, but there were times they were to rejoice. And when they played their instruments, they were to play them well. Um, Now, there was a pastor in Texas who had a church, and they had a small praise team on the church. And as they were beginning to grow, they added people who had instruments that could play. 
So they had a gentleman there playing a saxophone, and he thought it was just a great addition to the service and to the, the worship ministry. Well, as he was doing his visitation with a young couple, um, he was there visiting with them, and the couple was a little upset, and they're like, we're not coming back. We don't agree with that saxophone player. We came out of a um, nightclub lifestyle, and we don't know why anybody would use that in worship, and we just don't think it's appropriate. The pastor um, took it upon himself to share the testimony of the saxophone player. He said, you know, he too came out of a lifestyle of partying and being in the nightclubs and living for the street. But he also was delivered from that. And when he was delivered, he came to me and he said, I have spent my life and I have squandered my talents playing for the enemy, but now I want to use my talents for the Lord. So the point is that instruments are not of the devil. I'm old enough that I have heard the problems with contemporary music about the drum music and the beat, the rhythm, it's too fast, it might lead you to, to dance. And I'm, I'm not here to <laughs> argue any of that tonight. But instruments are not of the devil. They're um, very biblical things. And they can be used for the Lord. And just like us, we're instruments. We can be used for the Lord or um, for the devil, either one. Okay. And it also says, verse 3, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, we're not all Pastor Keith. We don't all have the, the ability. We're not all the Souths here. I certainly am not. But when it says sing a new song, that's not necessarily referring to a song that has never been sung before. That is a response to a fresh experience of God's grace. And I don't know about you, but I get God's grace daily. And I have a reason when I get up in the morning to praise the Lord, to give him a shout of praise, to rejoice because he woke me up, because he gave us another day. Because my children are in my home, they're still under our care. I can count the blessings daily, and I have reasons to rejoice. And the God's blessings is not something we take lightly, or we should not take lightly. Um, now, since God gives us those fresh blessings, we want to maybe make new songs if we can. But again, we're responding to the, the new, fresh outpouring of God's grace. And when we do offer, we want to offer our best to the Lord. We move on to verse 4. And this is to the call, we're looking at the calls for praise. So verses 1 through 3 were a call for the praise. And when we move to verse 4, it's the calls, the reason that we praise. And God declares and demonstrates the certainty and clarity of his word. 6 through 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of a sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So I love, I guess that was your basis for your song, I think he says, standing in awe of him. You know, God spoke into everything in existence, and I think everybody but Malachi here knows that. Um, I don't have to go back and tell you that God created the heavens and the earth and the moon and the sun and the stars and Jupiter and Mars. Um, Adam and Eve, you guys know the song, right? <laughs> Maybe you should have sang that one, Pastor Keith. <laughs> but God created everything, and he gives us the very breath we would breathe. And we see his involvement in nature. We see him attending to the waters and the depths of the sea. We see him in everyday creation. And knowing that he can control 
the very nature itself and the course of the earth, and he sets us on the rotation, the earth on its axis, you know, it gives us reason to fear God. Um, in God's plan, he created everything, and he had that perfect plan, but there are people on this earth and in this world who want to oppose God, and they want to try to um, bring about everything they've got, and they store their power, they utilize their power, their influence, their allies, everything to influence the outcome. But when God speaks, it doesn't matter how big this army is over here. It doesn't matter how much influence this person has over here, this nation. And if you look in the Bible, you see how easily God brought down people. If you think of the story of Gideon, who God kept telling him, decrease the army. We don't need 10,000. Decrease it down. We don't need 1,000. Decrease it down. And he went down to 300. It's because God spoke. It was God's power. And that's reason for us to fear him and to be amazed at his power. Now, God declares and demonstrates his faithfulness. I don't know about you, but God's been pretty faithful to me in my life. And I bet if we took time, we would all have multiple stories to tell of God's faithfulness right now. But all of his works are done in faithfulness. You know, if I had to describe faithfulness, I would use a lot of other words to describe it. And if we were describing someone who's faithful, we might say it's someone that was dependable, reliable, trustworthy, steadfast, a person of the word, true, loyal, unfailing, unwavering, consistent. So the core concept has to do with the dependability and the trust to carry out what is promised. And I don't know that we can say enough about the faithfulness of the Lord, because if we're sitting here today, we are proof and we're testaments of his faithfulness. And his divine love eternally commits him to himself and his creatures in his creatures and his creation. That's us. Because of his love for us, he's committed to us. He created us, he loves us, and he has he sent his son Jesus to die for us, and he's proven his commitment to us. His omniscience enables him to know everything about everything at all times. So he knows when we're hurting, he knows when we have needs, he knows before we before we ask. His omnipotence provides all the necessary energy and power to carry out his word. If we're honest, sometimes I think we doubt if God's able. And, I, and sometimes we all know in our head that he's able. And sometimes in our heart we may wonder simply if he will. But we know he's able, we know he's committed to us, and we know he loves us. His eternity eliminates the limitations of time. God doesn't always do things on our time frame. He doesn't do things as fast as we would like him to. But time is no limitations. And sometimes when doctors give the report and they say things are going to be bad and you have such and such time, but God can do better than that. God can give more time if it's will. He has that authority. His holiness eliminates the sin and selfishness factor. He can't be distracted or oppressed. He never falters. He never forgets. He never forsakes, and he never forfeits his wills, or he never fails. He is absolutely faithful, and it's his character. He does not change, and he is faithful in all things at all times. Look over here at Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 11. And it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you 
and in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So God is a faithful God. He will do what he says he's going to do. And that's not something we ever, ever have to doubt. His faithfulness is forever. His faithfulness is immeasurable, and he is clothed in faithfulness. The Psalms declare that he is faithful. This past, earlier in this year, this past spring, I guess, one of my colleagues' son died. He was a healthy young man, for all practical purposes, all we knew, and he died suddenly with, with no warning, um, very unexpectedly. And his mom is a colleague of mine, and having known her testimony already, she was a woman who, in her first five years of marriage, lost her first husband. And this son was um, this man's child. She remarried, and she had a daughter, and that daughter was tragically killed when she was 15 years old. And she divorced that husband for other reasons, and then this son passes away also. So you're watching her life as she loses her husband, she loses her daughter, and then she loses her son. And I went, when I went to her funeral, my son was in the hospital at that time, and we didn't know, it was for an extended time, we didn't know how things were gonna go with him. But when I went to the funeral, and I listened to her speak, and she just spoke of the faithfulness of God, and she was very upbeat, and as we were leaving um, the service, they were playing this very upbeat song, Praise God in the Sanctuary, Praise Him. Before I knew it, I was tapping my side, and I caught myself and I stopped because all my life has been drilled into me about being appropriate and there being a time and a place for everything. And I stopped and I asked myself, oh, is, is this appropriate? Should we be celebrating right now she just lost her son this is a time of grief but then it dawned on me it's always appropriate to praise the lord and i think about lamentations 319 and i was believe that she would this is the strength that gave her it says i remember my affliction and my wondering the bitterness and the gall i will remember them and my soul is downcast within me yet this will i call to mind and therefore i have hope because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And she knew his faithfulness was great. And although this verse is for a different time and a different setting, she knew because God had done it for someone in the Bible, because God had gotten her through the time that she lost her husband, that God had gotten her through losing her daughter, she could stand on the knowledge that God was going to be faithful and bring her through this also. We'll move on to verse 10 and verse 12 through 12. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. 
He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. God frustrates the plans of the world and accomplishes his plan. And when we read the Bible, we see many stories of how the enemy tried to come against God's people, but God stepped in and God said, no, this is my people, my hands upon them. And even when you think of Job, when the enemy came to, when the, came to him, the Lord and said, you know, your servant Job, I want to test him. The Lord pulled back and said, just, you can't take his life, but you can t- try him. You can test him. But God knew he was going to pull through, but God also said, you can't take his life. As believers, we can expect to see opposition to God's work. We have a target on our back. We're going to see the enemy's attempt at stopping anything we do. Um, And sometimes it's the evil people. Sometimes it's godless people, and they're not necessarily one and the same. And we're going to see um, people using different forms to try to stop us through ridicule, intimidation, and threat. And then it grows in intensity. You know, we have this big thing in our society today in schools about bullying. And some days it starts as something tiny. And then it just keeps growing and festering. And for little kids, this is tough um, to deal with. But it grows. And it grows in intensity from discouraging words and plots to attend them, um, to hurt them. We see this in uh, Nehemiah also. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6, it says, Now when Sambalot heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, nor let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work." Nehemiah had the job of ignoring the taunts. And I know our flesh, we want to taunt back, talk back to people, don't we? And people say things, sometimes it's in us. We just want to give them a piece of our mind or, or explain things to them a little bit. And I remember when um, I was in Bible college, we would go to New Orleans every year and we would evangelize on the streets of Mardi Gras. And we had matching sweatshirts, and we had very ordered precision how we got out there. We were a military style. They were very big on safety. Um, wanted to make sure we were lined up, we were together, everybody was accounted for. As we were unloading, there was a little stoop outside of a door uh, along the sidewalk at one of the businesses, and there was a couple of workers out there smoking. And there's one lady, she just was kind of looking at us in disgust, and she's like, I don't know what they think they're accomplishing. And everything within me wanted to fire back. And it's like, no, that's not going to be good. But I really wanted to say, ma'am, it's not what we're doing. 
It's what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the hearts and lives of these people. We just get to be a part of it. But even I had to keep my, my mouth quiet then. I had to be quiet. And sometimes it's hard for us to be quiet. But I did pray that God would be use one of us or someone to minister to her during this time. But so we, we experienced mockery. And Nehemiah expended this. Um, and the Lord frustrated the plans of the enemies. And in Nehemiah 4.15, it says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all turned to the wall, each to his own work. And the enemies backed off because God had frustrated their plot. It was not Nehemiah's plan. It was not his defense strategy. It was not because he was a good leader. It was because God took care of his people. And it was God who defeated the enemy's schemes. Also, he declares and demonstrates that the Lord's judgment is righteous. In this section, still in Psalms, it presents the Lord as the righteous ruler who observes and evaluates all people, that's you and me, according to the standard of his righteousness. So verses 13 and 14 are parallel, and each verse containing three ideas. Lost my place here. Okay. Right, so the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. So the Lord has this exalted position from heaven, but he's looking down at us on earth. And he's observing. He's looked down and he sees, he watches. And the objects of his investigations are us. Now there's a sharp contrast about from where he is. When we look at the Hebrew words, I'm not going to get into all the verbiage and all the, the forms and structure, I'll spare you that. But from where he sits to where we are, there's a, a sharp contrast. And that depicts his sovereignty and his lordship and his kingship. So he has an exalted position over us. And he observes all of us. And now there are three Hebrew verbs used for the Lord's observation. One is sees, one is watches, and the third one is gazes intently. And I want to focus on that one just for a minute. Um, just consider the weight of this. So imagine having a newborn baby. I know some of us don't have to imagine. Um, when you had your baby or you had a family member that had a baby that you just loved, baby, grandbaby, niece, nephew, someone that you adored, you gazed intently at that baby, didn't you? You couldn't stop staring at them. You just had that deep love, that intense love. What about when you fell in love with someone that first time, that significant other, when you just loved them, you found the one, and you just gazed intensely at them? Now multiply that times infinity, and that's how much God loves you us. You know, my little one was a baby, and every night he would tell me good night, and I love you, I love you more, well, I love you times ten, I love you more, I love you to infinity, and then I love you to infinity times infinity times infinity times infinity. And as we would try to outdo each other each time, you know, it was just a reminder, but that's how much God loves us. And I don't think I realized how much God truly loved us till I had a child of my own to understand God's love for us, because I knew how much I loved my baby. 
But that's how much God, He gazes intently. He cares about us coming and going. He cares about our affairs. He cares about the things that bother us, the things that concern us, the troubles we have. And He cares about the the good things that we celebrate in our life. And He wants to be a part of that celebration. And God's gaze is never indifferent toward us. And I think about that, and I think about, I don't know, I get weary in body. I get tired. Sometimes I don't have the energy to love. I don't have the energy to look intensely at someone. Um, But God's gaze is never indifferent toward us. But since he created us, he knows all of our acts and intentions behind him. So God is not only observing us, he's evaluating us. And I guess another way of saying that, that he is observing us or that he is judging us. He also declares and demonstrates that the Lord's love is loyal and faithful. Now, the earth is full of evidence of his loyal love. Now, God loves us. We love people. But the Lord's love is a loyal love. And this was a new concept to me. I guess I never really just thought about it in those terms. But his love manifests itself throughout the world and his dealings with his people. And it's the loyal love of the Lord that saves and preserves the lives of those who trust in him. 16 through 19 says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. In verse 16, we see that the king is not saved by his army. Now, it may appear at times that a victory belongs to an army. We know that every victory comes from the Lord. Now, he may choose to use an army. He may choose to use a horse. He may choose to use powers that be. But we know that every victory comes from the Lord. Verse 17, we see about the, the war horse. The war horse is a false hope. It's empty. It's not something we should put our hope in. And in the ancient world, the horse is what the embodiment of military might. And he says it's a vain thing. And the section focus is on the the kessed love, which is a faithful covenant love of God. And the psalmist announces the expectation of deliverance that hoping in the loyal love of the Lord brings. Verse 19 expresses the double purpose of the Lord's watchful care, that he may deliver their soul from death, and he may keep them alive in famine. And that famine can refer to any natural disaster. It can refer just to keeping us alive. But that's the Lord's purpose, to deliver us from death. And we talk about delivering us from death. We're talking about our eternal salvation. We're not just talking about our earthly body. Um, but that's his, he wants to spare us from that. We are his creation because he watches us and he sees our goings and coming because he loves us so much. He cares about that. In the conclusion, the verses, final three verses we have there, 20 to 22, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So I hope you see some of the transitions here. And in the final three verses here, the psalmist is speaking on behalf of the congregation. So he's gone from kind of making these declarations and talking from praise, talking about creation. Now he's speaking on behalf of the congregation. He offers a confession of confidence in the Lord by those waiting for his protection. 
And so every day when we praise, when we witness, we're expressing our confession of confidence to the Lord. And we joyfully trust in His name. We're calling in hope for His continued loyal love. Verse 21 provides a picture of their expectation of rejoicing. It says, For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. In verse 22, the confidence of the people turns into a prayer requesting the Lord's continual love. They want what the loyal love produces, further acts of deliverance and protection. Does anybody else in here want that? I know I do. I know I want to be delivered from my sins because I know tomorrow I'm going to fall short. The next day I'm going to fall short and the next day too. I can about guarantee it. And I know I want God's deliverance. I want his protection and I want his protection from the things I might find myself in, the things I might walk in, the the traps the enemy might set for me. I want that deliverance and I want that protection. But the remainder of the verse reaffirms their faith. It says, even as we hope in you. So we see that they waited eagerly for the Lord. They rejoiced because they trusted in Him, and they petitioned Him to continue to manifest His loyal love for Him. So as we said earlier, we have many reasons to praise the Lord. Many, many blessings we're grateful for. The outcome of our continual prayer and our continual praise results in spiritual renewal and growth. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, I did not see in it in the process of being worshipped, that God communicates his presence to men. And if you want to be in the presence of the Lord, worship him. And worship includes praising and rejoicing. And Lewis also offers us, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So praise and worship and rejoicing do not solely benefit the recipient. It's for us as well. And so the act of praise, which requires the formulations of thoughts and ideas, which are expressed most often verbally, sometimes physically, sometimes silently, they force us to consider one of two things, the praiseworthiness of the one being praised or the extent you have been blessed by the one being praised. C.S. Lewis also says, praise not merely expresses, but completes our enjoyment. And God is ever faithful, always watching, and loves with a loyal love. So tonight, I would conclude with asking you, I know we're praise. I hope we're all worshipers. I know we love the Lord or we wouldn't be here. But do we have a true understanding that our hope is in Him, that our salvation is in Him, that our deliverance is Him, that it's not chariots, it's not horses? But are we also aware of the loyal love that He has to us? Even when we drift away from Him, even when we backslide, He's gazing intently at us because His love is so great for us and that He's always there when we drift away and we return. All right, let's pray.